This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, an ETF sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a great show today, very markets-oriented, uh, big week, a lot happening. We had the midterm elections. Uh, Professor Siegel called it spot on, both uh, with his outlook and exactly how he thought the markets would react. We had the Fed week. Um, Professor, uh, not you know, a lot, lot to talk about. Well, how did you think the week went from the elections? And then we'll talk the Fed. Yeah, so... Uh, as far as the market concerned, it, it was it was quite good. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, if the Dems had taken over the, the uh, Senate, that would not be good. Of course, they didn't, and not only that, the Republicans consolidated their lead. Now, uh, really, the it looked like 54 seats uh, yesterday, day before, but uh, latest counts. The odds makers say it's going to be 53 for the Republicans, um, and uh, that's that's still a decent gain and a, a decent uh, margin. Uh, the number of seats by the uh, net seats for the Dems uh, in the House, uh, 538 projected 30 to 32. Um, it that came close. Uh, it's now looking like 28, 29, and of course there's there's still a few seats that are very. Uh, on, uh, you know, very, very close there. Uh, so, you know, when the expected thing happens and worst scenarios don't happen, we got that relief value of 500 uh, and, and 50 points. Um, uh, so major uncertainty uh, out of the way. Uh, again, you know, in the long run, politically holding the Senate um, uh, makes it easier for them to hold Senate in 2020, uh, even if the presidency uh, flips to the Democrats. Um, and uh, actually, I just think say that's probably going to happen. It'll go with two years out. But if the uh, Republicans can continue to hold the Senate, then they cannot reverse the corporate tax cuts that were enacted during the first uh, half of the Trump administration. Um, on the Fed side... Uh, saying nothing actually is uh, hawkish. <laughs> if, uh, if the if the Fed has any intention of uh, 
not moving in December. It's, this is about the time they start, have to start uh, talking about it because clearly the market is overwhelmingly expecting it, and it is the uh, procedure and intention of the Fed. They, they don't want to shock the market. Um, uh, when you take a look at it, there was virtually no change um, from uh, the September meeting uh, uh, that they mentioned uh, uh, and so they are on track for another December. Now, again, we, we still have, uh, I think it's December 19th. I mean, we still have six weeks. We have another employment report. You know, Christmas season might not be good, et cetera. But none of that looks like it's happening. Oil is coming way down. Gasoline is coming way down. Some of those uh, consumer threats are coming down. So my feeling is is uh, that uh, they are going to hike there, and and I think that's one reason you got pressured on the market a little, uh, toward the end of Thursday and a little bit uh, 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 right now. It's interest rates in the short run. We we had that ten year tickle three and a quarter. Um, you know that's the high over the last few weeks. If it breaks through there, then three fifty would be the next uh, route. And um, with corporate uh, profit estimates coming down for 2019. We've said on this program for a long time they're too high. You know, um, it's going to be challenging, I think, for for big gains in, in equities. But I think that uh, you know it's handled that sell-off very well, bounced back. It was really uh, undervalued at that time. Um, I see a choppy market till year end. Yeah, we had uh, it's an interesting commentary there. We had you know, Tom Lee from Fundstrat, former J.P. Morgan strategist, on last week. He thought he had, he was wildly bullish. He thought we're getting three thousand twenty-five on positioning. That sort of people were sort of net short, the most net short since twenty sixteen, and that they're going to have to start catching up. Um, which and then he said even next year he's he's hearing people pessimistic for next year. Uh, doesn't see any catalyst, and then so maybe that's get, getting him going. That maybe even next year because it's so out of consensus that next year's going to be a big year. Yeah. And he. Any commentary on that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, how to how to look at 2019? I mean, wow, I mean, so many things, uh, so many things can happen. I mean, I, I think you know, the, the the most important thing is, you, you know, again, the long term that we've talked about now for a year, year and a half, we're, we're generating 200,000 plus jobs a month with with demographics uh, giving us a hundred. Um, it's eating into the unemployment rate. Three seven is extremely low. Three five has usually been a trigger for pretty aggressive wage gains. Um, and we, you know, we got a nice two tenths of a percent jump in that participation rate. As I said, uh, a number of people think we still have a few more tenths to go, and you know, perhaps even a year where we can raise participation without squeezing it. Otherwise, the Fed has to squeeze it down. To a hundred thousand, and um, you know that means further rate hikes. So that's the the, the the big thing to watch each time. It's that 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 labor market uh, report that comes in first Friday, and uh, um, uh, you know how tight is the labor market actually getting? Very good. Any other? And so we're going to be talking about interest rates on the first segment of the program. Um, is is uh, you know I know you called three twenty five for this yeah. year as as you think for next year. Yeah. Uh, you want to well, start thinking you know, about yeah, twenty nineteen there? I, I uh, yeah, I was, I was down in Orlando giving a, a talk just yesterday, and um, uh, I I think we're going to be three fifty to three seventy five. Next year, I, I think we we continue to uh, to inch up. Um, 
And uh, we have seen, uh, actually, what, what interesting, what we've seen is um, uh, the uh, the tips yield, the 10-year tips at 114, 115. Now, that reflects stronger economic growth. Um, you know, we had tips minus one <laughs> a few years ago, which was dismal. Um, but if, you know, if we are on a, a faster growth path, uh, two and a half to three, you're going to see that tips continue to rise. Um, again, let me, let me also say the early estimates of, of this quarter, and we're, what, exactly halfway through without the Christmas season, of course, which is key, is still 2526. And, um, you know, that's not great. And uh, also productivity doesn't look as good as it is. Last two quarters were great productivity growth early returns, and it's still very early, a little bit less. So, again, um, we, we want to keep that momentum going, but uh, we, need, we need more data to confirm that. Very good. Uh, well, Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary to start the, the show off today. Okay. Thank you. See you next week. We're going to continue our conversation on the show today. Um, we're going to be talking with Kevin Flanagan, who's a senior fixed income strategist at, at Wisdom Tree. He's also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services, like myself. On the second part of the show, we'll be talking with Jared Dillian from the Daily Dirt Nap. Um, and, you know, talking about Jared's return guest has been on, a, a great writer and, and thought leader on, on the markets. So, um, so Kevin, uh, I think you might have missed some of the, the initial conversation with Professor Siegel, but you know, as as you look at the the Fed news and sort of your outlook for the economy, how that's going to impact interest rates and fixed income allocations, how did you respond to just the Fed the Fed report? Um, or sort of, and Professor Siegel framed it as no news was hawkish in the sense that if they would be if they thought they were going to not hike in December, they would start you know now about the time when they start releasing that kind of sentiment that they're not moving rates up again. Um, what was your take on the Fed news and, and how you're thinking about the Fed policy going forward? Yeah, I would agree with the professor. Essentially, no news is uh, maybe more on the hawkish side, because I think, you know, usually what they do in the beginning of their prepared policy statement is they acknowledge what's occurring in sort of the current economic conditions. And there was no mention whatsoever of some of the trail-off we've seen in a variety of the housing data that have come in over the last few months. Obviously, that's been a result of the rise in mortgage rates. You're looking at 30-year conventional fixed rates now hovering around the 5% area. And I think the fact that they excluded that was the Fed's way of perhaps sending a message to the market. Yes, we're going in December, and as of November 8th, we have not changed our opinion on our outlook and prepare for at least two or three rate hikes in 2019. Yeah. And so as you think about the longer-term outlooks of the Fed policy is certainly one thing that impacts all fixed income allocations. You know, the, and if you think about longer-term outlooks, we were talking to the professor. He had a a view. You know, this year he'd called for spot on 325, and uh, you know, you're never going to get it that close. But he he was pre- pretty heads on from the start of the year. I asked him, "What do you think next year is?" And he was looking for, you know, with somewhat in that Fed hiking, like you're saying, he was thinking 350 to 375 for next year. I mean, how do you look at the long-term 10-year yield and, and where that's going? I think, you know, you can probably make somewhat of a case that 
a good portion of the backup in the tenure has occurred. But, I mean, that's right. It just gets down to math, Jar, that you were starting at 241 at the beginning of this year, and you're already at 321 as we speak. So, you know, an 80 basis point increase. So, you know, a move to 3.5 or above 3.5 is going to take the next leg of the economy, that the economy can't show signs of slowing. Most forecasters out there look for GDP in the area of, say, roughly 3% this year, most are looking for that to pull back to at least 2.5% next year. But perhaps the wild card is going to be on the inflation side. Will we begin to see any pass-through effects, say, from the tariffs, the trade wars that we're seeing with China on some of the imported goods that are coming into the U.S.? Also, wages. I think we need to pay very close attention to wages. That's sort of been the missing ingredient in this whole inflation puzzle that we've been dealing with for the last couple of years. And for the first time since 2009, in the latest report that we got on Friday, you're looking at readings year over year for average hourly earnings with a 3% handle or a little bit above. We haven't been that way for a long time. And obviously, the Fed wants to see this. So that keeps them on the gradual rate hike side. But if you were to get surprises, say, in the consumer price report, the core measures, if you were to get surprises to the upside in wages, does the Fed then, you know, become a little bit more aggressive? Right now, a lot of the commentary seems to be pointed along the lines that the Fed will go December, March, and June of next year, and then take a pause, because the expectation is the economy is going to start showing signs of slowing. But, you know, if you want to take the other side of the trade, what happens if the economy doesn't show significant slowing and you start getting surprises on the inflation side? That's how you get to 350. That's how you get to 375 on the 10-year. You know, one of the, your, your points on wages, um, and we saw the 3% handle on it, and in a lot of the you know, discussions we have, we've had some Fed guests on. Um, we had Bullard on recently, and we're, we're actually stacking up for later in December. Uh, Loretta Messer is planning to, to come on, I believe. And, you know, one of the big discussions at the Fed is, is the Phillips curve debt, which is, you know, the Phillips curve being the relationship between unemployment and inflation. And, you know, I had read a note this week, actually, from Sam Rines of Avalon Advisors, somebody I got to know at uh, the sort of Cam Kotox in Maine. And Sam wrote a piece that the Phillips curve never died. It's just the demographics and just the composition of the workforce with the aging of the baby boomers, they're retiring, getting getting off the rolls. And that, you know, the older people making more money coming off while younger people coming on. And he, he looked at uh, sort of the Atlanta Fed wage growth tracker for prime age workers. And that's showing a pretty, you know, healthy Phillips curve that, that the unemployment rate there um, is tracking wage growth pretty much. Do you have any, any commentary on, on that demographics makeup? And uh, maybe just people are looking at the wrong data points? No, I, I think those are very fair points. It's interesting. Uh, unfortunately, maybe we're going to read about this. Uh, for me, it could, maybe it's my grandkids when they're in college and they start reading about this in the textbooks. What happened to the Phillips curve after the financial crisis and the Great Recession? But I think those are fair points with respect to the demographics. And I think, you know, you're mentioning the Atlanta Fed tracker with respect to wages. That has been always running above the average hourly earnings from what comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, for the last year to two years, it's actually something that we have been monitoring. It's not something the markets focus on, however. And I don't know where the Fed is 
you know, on all that. Maybe that would be a great question to ask some of your upcoming Fed guests. You know, do you give more credence to something like an Atlanta Fed measure, or are you focusing more on what the BLS is mentioning? And to your point, what are they measuring? Why is there, you know, somewhat of a discrepancy between the two measures? I think maybe what you're finally beginning to see is the BLS version, average hourly earnings, maybe playing some catch-up. We see that oftentimes with the uh, just the employment report in general. You know, there's non-farm payrolls. I promise I won't go too far down this rabbit hole. You know, that comes from the establishment survey. And then you have civilian employment, and that comes from the more of the popular, the population uh, type of survey. They don't always jive on a regular basis, but they tend to come together. And maybe that's what, after a bit of a lag here, we're going to begin to see that the BLS measure, average hourly earnings, is going to start playing catch-up to what the Atlanta Fed statistic has been showing us. We're talking with Kevin Flanagan, who's a senior fixed income strategist at, at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, you know, and, and we think about how people are positioned. You take all this economic reading, you, you take the Fed hiking. When you're talking to clients, how, what are, what are you hearing on people's fixed income allocations? What are what are your, your what are you talking about? Great question. You know, I mean, because we've gotten to the point here where there's been just ongoing discussion where that 10-year Treasury rate's going to go. You know, something we only focused on the upside. What, what about, you know, to say that phrase again, the other side of the trade? What about, say, a surprise from China on the growth front, meaning a negative surprise? What happens in the Italian budget saga? We just had news yesterday coming from the EU. They're actually, um, you know, showing their displeasure with the Italian economic forecast in terms of their, you know, debt with respect to GDP, and they see it abrogating that magical 3% mark, you know, in the next year or two. Those are, unfortunately, those are headlines that always seems to come back into the market. Just when we think rates are going to continue to go up, you get these other headlines coming in, and, and they don't appear to be going away. So I think you have to continue to focus and bring that into the overall mix when you're talking about fixed income from a broader portfolio perspective. You know, one of the strategies I think that we would tend to have a high conviction on would be looking at Treasury floating rate notes. And what's interesting is that they've been around since the beginning of 2014. A lot of investors or market participants are not aware of it. Like you have these conversations and you said, are you guys aware that the Treasury issues floaters? And oftentimes I would say at least two-thirds of an audience was not aware of it. And they're an interesting product because they are pegged to the three-month Treasury bill. So essentially it resets with the weekly three-month T-bill auction. So you're getting Fed protection. So in other words, if you, I mean, this is getting it all back, right, to how we began talking about the Fed. If you think the Fed's going to raise rates three, four, maybe even five more times, say between now and 2020, this is probably a strategy that you want to continue to pursue. You don't really show much concern where the 10-year yield's going to go because this is going to be pegged more to that front end, to what the Fed's going to do. And you're looking at rates now in the area of about 2.35% with essentially a one-week duration, no credit involved. It's just treasuries, per se. And if you do the math, if you look for four more rate hikes um, using the Fed's blue docks, that's going to bring you up to about three and a quarter somewhere in 2019. So I think it's a good strategy as a complement for your fixed income portfolio where you're taking out some hedged risk on the rate front. You're also providing yourself with 
income potential as the Fed continues to raise rates. And I think another important part of this strategy is for the first time in quite some time, you're seeing negative readings in fixed income. You know, you just look at the Barclays Ag, you know, being down about two and a half to two and three quarters percent this year, you may begin to see something you haven't seen in a number of years, and that's tax loss selling in fixed income mm-hmm. and reallocating some of those proceeds, say, into a treasury floating rate strategy. That's, that's interesting, Kevin. I, I, I've been with you in those rooms where you sort of ask how many of you know that the floating rate treasury exists and seeing very few hands raised, which is, it is a, you know, it was that new security issued first time, I think, since 1997 when they issued tips. And so a lot of people think about tips as being a nice inflation hedge, but you also think these floating rates offer just another different proxy for inflation. Maybe you sort of talk about the differences between tips and floating rates and sort of tracking or hedging against inflation. Yeah, you know, I mean, so tips are used as a rate hedge strategy because the the general or conventional wisdom was that higher inflation is going to give you higher interest rates. So what you're doing is trying to take two birds with one stone there, right? But the problem is with tips is it's still a real yield fixed instrument. It's not floating, it's fixed. That's the important difference and the duration tends to be you know a little bit further out there so there is going to be some rate sensitive uh, rate sensitivity for real yield and if you actually go back and you look at the performance between treasury floating rate notes and treasury tips over this cycle that we've seen where the Fed has begun to raise rates and now the 10-year Treasury is beginning to move up as well, you do see the floating rate strategy outperforming. And I think those are the two key reasons why. One is floating, one is fixed, one has a one-week duration. The other, if you look at overall, I think on the indices, it's probably somewhere around five to six years in duration for tips. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we have seen a backup in real yields. You know, so if you look at the 10-year tips yield, I see just since August, we were at 70 bips on the 10-year. Now we're at 115. Um, so you're definitely seeing a 45 basis point increase in yield. So going forward, you know, you're getting a little bit more compensation today. Um, these are probably the highest numbers you've seen, uh, I don't know, probably in a long time. Um, but, you know, the tips indexes this year are down, you know, like you're saying, like at the ag, the, the, the tips index is down two and a half percent where, you know, uh, um, sort of that short duration side, just sort of moving rates up with inflation is uh, sort of a more interesting payoff there. Yeah, you know, I, and it's, it's funny, too, because there's even other short duration strategies, you know, just say looking apples to apples, you know, in, in the Treasury arena that will focus, say, into one to three year maturities or things along those lines. And once again, it gets back to they're still fixed rate securities and they're still going to have an impact on them from what the Fed is doing. So if the Fed is raising rates 75 to 100 basis points this year and another one coming, now you may lessen the blow than if you were further out on the curve, but you're still going to have that tie-in to what the Fed's doing and you can have you know, underperformance, say, versus a floating rate strategy. 
Now, one of the things, you know, I've, the, the security itself, since you say a lot of people haven't heard about it, maybe uh, there's a few interesting attributes that I always find confusing when you, when you read about it, which is you have this floating rate aspect that resets every week. So you sort of talk about you know, what's going to reflect the Fed's thinking and sort of moving ahead of even the Fed because it bakes in some expectation of what is the Fed going to do. But it's actually a two-year instrument. So maybe sort of talk a little bit mechanically, like what is it that a floating rate treasury that they start issuing is? <clears throat> yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's a two-year floating rate note. So it floats off of the three-month weekly treasury bill auction. So it's not LIBOR or the new LIBOR, which is now SOFR. Maybe that's time for a, another another show down the road. This is going to be based just strictly on the three-month T-bill. They're auctioned every month, every month of the calendar. And the first month of every calendar quarter is a new issue and then they reopen that the treasury the following two months using that same issue so in terms of liquidity you're talking about you know issues now especially with the new supply uh, considerations that have come into being in treasury increasing supply in this area as well you know roughly in the area say of 55 billion dollars per issue that are out there so it's become a, a very nice alternative, I think, for investors to look at. And if you go life cycle to life cycle, let's just bring it back a little bit to what you were talking about with tips. So if you were to go four years into the tips life cycle, which is where we are for floating rate notes, the amount outstanding in floaters is about three times the size as it was in tips. So there has been, you know, some people coming in saying to you, well, you know, I remember tips had a slow start. No, floating rate notes are not off to a slow start. They are actually an active part of the Treasury's overall financing mix. And as I mentioned before, they just announced on Halloween they're going to increase issuance by another billion dollars as we continue to try to fund the increasing deficits as we see going forward. So the rate then, when you get the actual auction, there's going to be a little bit of a spread versus that three-month bill based upon supply and demand at the auction for the actual floating rate note. That's on average uh, been about an increase of five basis points. So usually, you know, back of the envelope, if you want to see where a 10-year, I mean, a, a two-year floating rate note is going to be, look at the latest weekly three-month T-bill auction, add, say, roughly five basis points to that, and you'll probably come up with a good um, shot of where you're seeing that yield, which is now about 2.35%. We're talking with, again, Kevin Flanagan, Senior Fixed Income Strategist at Wisdom Tree. Uh, you know, coming up is going to be Jared Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap. And Jared has been writing a little bit about credit. And uh, I know, you know the, it, it, we've been focused on the floating rate treasury because you think that's sort of the, your highest conviction idea. But if you think about uh, sort of the credit cycle and where we are, you know, it's been a very benign credit environment. You haven't really seen lots of defaults. Um, spreads generally compressed. I mean, how would you describe both investment grade, high yield? How are you thinking about those markets? Um, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about that with Jared as well. Uh, well, you know, that, that's a great question. That, that may be actually where this is all going in fixed income next. Everyone seems to be on, on the same side of the trade in terms of uh, rate slash duration risk. You know, and the other part, obviously, for fixed income is credit risk. Where are we? in the credit cycle. You know, some of the work that we've done has shown investment grade and high yield spreads where they are now is where they can reside 
if there are no, say, outside negative forces, recessions, dot-com bubbles, things along those lines, uh, financial crisis, to name another one. We've seen this happen before for three- to four-year periods over the last, say, 20 to 25 years. And interestingly, the last time we were at these levels for a more sustained period was from 2003 to 2007. And if you go within that band from 04 to 06, that's when Mr. Greenspan was actually raising the funds target a quarter point at every meeting. So there are some similarities there when you're looking at what the Fed is doing now versus what they were doing, uh, say, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. But I do feel that investors should begin to start thinking about credit quality, going up in quality, and not just looking at things from a pure market cap-based approach, which is really going to be focused more on debt issuers receiving the more weight in the index. I think you're going to need to see something a little bit more. Go under the hood, start looking at company balance sheets, and I think trying to be more selective in your credit exposure and your credit selections and your credit solutions as we move into 2019, because we are going to get to a point where you're going to start reading more about downgrade and default risk. Not there yet, but I think it's always good to be preemptive on that front and to be proactive. Don't wait for it to occur. Maybe start making some changes or reallocations prior. Yeah, that is, is interesting there. Um, any other, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of, a lot of good ground. Uh, any uh, sort of closing thoughts or anyth anything that we, ha we haven't covered that you'd want to bring some attention to? No, I think, you know, we covered a lot. Uh, w one thing, um, Obviously, the, the midterm elections, everyone was focused on that, uh, fo uh, you know, trying to determine where we thought the markets were going to go. And from a fixed income standpoint, we moved on pretty quickly. So, you know, there was some volatility on Tuesday night following, you know, the election results. But the bond market is back to operating as usual, looking at the fundamentals, looking at potential flight to quality from headlines abroad. So the bond market we knew prior to uh, November 6th is back to where we're at right now. Well, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us for, for, uh, for the show today. Thanks for having me, Jerry. I appreciate it. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break, but we're going to continue our conversation. The post-elections, post-Fed meeting uh, show this week. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. For the next half hour, we're going to talk with Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, a daily market newsletter for investment professionals. He's been publishing since 2008, the days of Lehman. Uh, he's been on our show a number of times. Jared, welcome back to the show. Jeremy, thank you for having me on. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk, get your, your sort of pulse connected into what's going on daily basis. All, a lot of interesting commentary that you produce, um, but you know, the, the, we'll sort of dive into a lot of different themes and, and where you're going with both your newsletter and how you're thinking about giving people different advice. I know I'm following a, a few different segments of, of, of how you're branching out beyond even just the daily dirt nap, uh, so we'll talk about that. Um, but maybe okay. just give us a, a quick read of of what's been happening in the markets this week. We had the elections, a lot of reactions to that. How are you looking at the market setup where we are today and, and how you're reacting to it? Yeah, I mean, the, mid the midterm elections are being interpreted uh, different ways by different people. I think I think it's a bit of a Rorschach blot. People are kind of getting what they want out of it. Um, I What I didn't realize going into it was that the market had sort of subtly priced in uh, – a worst case scenario of a big loss 
of House seats of about 50 or 60 seats to the Democrats, and that didn't happen. Uh, so that was interpreted positively by the market. Uh, I mean, I have other observations about the elections, but they're strictly political observations. Uh, I think this doesn't fundamentally change uh, the economic agenda going forward for the next two years. So, you know, it's a little bit of a green light to buy stocks. Um, and is there, you know, parts of the, the market that, you know, you, you like? I mean, the fang, it's been really a fang-led market. October was, was nasty as you had this sort of rotation away from momentum in tech. Anything within, you know, or, or do you think now if you're saying it's a green light to buy stocks, does it go back towards the, the tech momentum leaders? Uh, well, when I, you know, when I said that, I meant sort of in the very short term. In the long okay. term, you know, I think there's some – uh, there's still some fundamental issues with the market. Um, my concern is is that uh, momentum it might actually be, as a factor, might be dead for a really long time. Um, if you look at factor performance going back 10 years, I mean, momentum is massively outperformed and value has massively underperformed. Um, and I, I just get the feeling that there's been a change in trend, and this is just you know, I, I can't quantify this. This is just sort of a hunch. Um, and this sort of, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, this kind of goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, if you look at what's in momentum, some of the individual companies are, are starting to run into a lot of fundamental issues. I mean, if you, if you mentioned Fang and, you know, there's, there's the, there's always the possibility for antitrust action against Amazon or Google or, Facebook, and I think the political pressure is ramping up on these companies. So, um, you know, if I were if I were to choose a factor to live in uh, over the next, you know, taking a long term view over the next five years, I would not choose momentum. Hmm. Yeah, no, we had, we had a similar conversation last week. We had uh, Tom Tom Lee of Fund Strategist on on a front fund yeah. strat on the program, and he talked about this ten to fifteen year rotation going to asset heavy value and. Um, and and sort of being getting an inflation environment that you know value's been dead and uh, sort of come yeah. time to come back. And that and that's you know and obviously that would be good for the hedge fund world as well. Um, you know the hedge fund world tends to be uh, tends to be you know value stock pickers, especially the long short guys. And uh, you know that's been so out of favor for so many years. Uh, you know the hedge funds have really suffered so. I think people have been predicting a hedge fund comeback for a while now, but you know now it might actually happen. Um, so you know, beyond you know the U.S., you know, the, a lot of your commentary in the past has focused on the global markets. I mean, do you have a U.S.? You know, the, a lot of, one of the big narratives is that you know the U.S. is also the last ten years like value's been lagging, momentum's been leading. The U.S. is sort of a momentum market, and everything else is cheap and and uh, been lagging. Is it is there going to be rotation? You know, to international to emerging markets, or is it going to be the U.S. is going to be the main haven for everybody? Well, you know what's interesting is that. Um, if you if you take a look at interest rates, uh, risk-free rates around the globe, um, you know, tens are at about three point two percent in the U.S. Canada is about two and a half percent. France is eighty basis points. Germany is forty basis points. Japan is thirteen basis points. The U.K. is one hundred and fifty basis points, and only Italy has higher yields. Italy has tens at about three point three three percent. 
So if I'm, you know, if I'm a fixed income manager and I'm looking around the world, you know, you can get 3% yields on U.S. tenure notes. And that's, you know, Italy's a basket case. Like, that's, that's not a safe yield. Like, this is a safe yield in the U.S. That's, that's high real interest rates. Um, and the U.S. is a destination for capital from around the globe. And it has been for a number of years. You know, and I wrote a piece recently, and I'm kind of struggling to figure out how, why, you know, how or why that would change. Um, you know, I am sort of drawn personally to cheap stocks, and you know, I uh, I put a pretty big bet on France around the election in one and a half or two years ago, and that worked out pretty well. But I would love to buy European stocks for their cheapness. But the U.S. remains the most attractive place to send money in the world. And outside of really big political changes, which could happen, um, but outside of that, uh, I don't see that changing in the near future. Yeah, like it's how do you make that call? What's going to be the catalyst, right? So you all these markets. You know, they end up being cheap. You say, well, they're cheap for a reason and the fundamentals are just deteriorating. Or does it get to such the point where the valuations become, you know, attractive enough that you don't know what the catalyst is, but something's going to just become a little bit less scary and things just start to move up a bit? Um, now, I wonder, you know, I, that, that maybe in the, in the currency is a whole other question. We've talked about, you know, at one point you like the euro. Other points, uh, you know, don't you just buy the stocks and not take on the, on the currency risk. But any... Uh, any thoughts about what the catalyst could be for Europe that gets it moving a little bit more in the right direction? Uh, you know, my fear is that there might not be a positive catalyst. There might be a negative catalyst. You know, Merkel is pretty much done in Germany, and I don't know what the outcome of that next election is going to be. But, you know, Merkel, outside of Macron, is kind of the last uh, globalist in the world. Um, and, you know, we have a world that is sort of filling up with Trumps and Bolsonaros and people like that, um, a world full of nationalists. And, uh, you know, that sort of makes for a more high volatility environment. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I look at, I look at Europe and I say, and you say, okay, Merkel is gone. And, uh, if France or Germany, um, you know, if the AFD come to power in Germany, then it's, it's yeah, it's a big threat for the euro. So I mean, honestly, as as much as I want to buy cheap stuff, uh, you know, when I if I look out one or two or three years in Europe, it doesn't look all that attractive. Yeah, and so when you think about the the other places that look cheap, I, I think uh, you know the emerging markets are in, in part of that list. But then it comes back to if all the capital is coming to the U.S., you get a strong dollar. Is that just uh, you got to stay out of the emerging markets? Is that uh, I know we've talked about that in, in some of our past conversations. Any, any views there? Yeah, I think I think EM as of about a year ago, maybe a little more. EM really became uh, less of an asset class and more of uh, idiosyncratic countries. I think it's hard to think of EM as just a blob. And and buy an emerging market ETF and just say this is an asset class. I think it's really become idiosyncratic. Um, I mean, just you know, it, for example, you know, just in the last couple of weeks in Brazil, you have Bolsonaro getting elected, which has been interpreted very positively by markets. And uh, Amlo in Mexico is doing some things 
um, like, uh, you know, getting rid of the airport construction and actually eliminating, you know, ATM fees at banks and stuff like that. Um, that's been interpreted very negative. You know, Mexican stocks are getting killed. So I think in EM, you just kind of have to, you know, go country by country. And in a strong dollar environment, you're kind of, it's kind of pushing a rock uphill anyway. So I'm not sure I want to do it. Yeah. I mean, the, the main one is like everything revolves around China. So that's like the overriding until we get some kind of trade deal or, you know, we get, if, if there will be one, you know, and there's, we've had some commentary saying that, you know, it's going to take two to three years before that we ever actually actually come to this, even though we're starting to see some, uh, you see signs and then they pull back the signs. You never know if we're going to actually get to this deal or not. But that the views around China and, and China tech in particular has been one of the sort of key market, uh, just sort of like U.S. fang, you got the, the Chinese fang that is, is a big driver of a lot of that. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, we, we focus a bit on, on equities here. Any, I know you've also been writing about credit uh, and, and, and fixed income. Um, any, you want to sort of pivot the conversation to what, what do you think is happening in, in the credit markets and what's, uh, what's going on there? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, around the time of uh, the Lehman bankruptcy, of the 10-year anniversary, you know, I got some calls from some journalists, you know, uh, asking for interviews, and I got a call from somebody at CNN and, uh, you know, this woman asked me, she said, she, it was just a really reasonable question. She said, you know, what do you think we'll have another financial crisis? What do you think it'll look like? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, I said, if we do have one, it's not going to be in residential real estate because um, we already did that. And we, uh, you know, we, we put a bunch of safeguards in place to protect against that. I said, we could have another one. I said, I think the strongest candidate right now is U.S. corporate credit. Um, you know, we have 13 and a half trillion corporate bonds outstanding and the quality of these bonds is getting worse. Uh, you know, the average, the median rated corporate bond used to be an A rated bond and now it's triple B minus pretty soon. will the median rated corporate bond will be junk. Um, a lot of new LBO debt is, uh, coming to market at a low single B just, we have, and this, and I think these ratings are actually being generous. I think they're sort of understating how bad the credit quality is. And you can look at, you know, percentage of bonds that are cub white and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's definitely, you know, the only thing that's been keeping this going is just incredible flows into credit. Like there is, you know, there continue to be deals every day. The deals are oversubscribed. There is a ton of money. And I think this is a function of, you know, years of QE and stuff like that, but, you know, a triple B credit with a, you know, five and a half, six percent yield looks pretty good on a global basis. You know, when I mentioned all those yields across the globe, like, you know, a five and a half or six percent yield, it's pretty competitive and people like it. Um, so as much as people have been bearish on credit, it's kind of hard to be bearish on credit just because of the flows. You just have this wall of money that comes into it every day. Yeah. No, so we're, let me just reintroduce. We're talking with Jared Dillian, the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, uh, produced a lot of great market commentary on a daily basis and and uh, even getting beyond just the Daily Dirt Nap uh, for some of that distribution. We, we, I, I do think, you know, we, we talk about where are yields going. You know, we start off, you know, the 10 years, 325 today. Can it get to 350? Can it get higher? But you have these global forces of, as to your point, that Japan, that Europe are in so much lower that, 
that that is one of the constraints is just how low the global yield is, not just what's going on in the U.S. Otherwise, you might yeah. say it's not just our QE. It's really there's still global QE and, uh, and low interest rates pressures around the world. Yeah, I actually, you know, there's uh, a lot of people have sort of sweaty palms uh, waiting for a bond bear market. And, uh, you know, I'm just talking about absolute rates here. And I think that, you know, if you get a, if you get a bear market in duration, it's, going to be very subtle it's not going to be fast it's not going to be sharp you know with with tens at 325 you get tens out to 350 and there's a lot of buyers you know tens at 350 as you look around the world look pretty attractive you know tens at 375 look at even more attractive so you know every every little bit incrementally that yields go up you're going to find a whole new class of buyers so you know, if we are in the middle of a multi-year or multi-decade bond bear market and yields are going much higher, they're going to do so very slowly. Um, it's going to take a long time. And I think that bond bears who are, who are looking for a crash are going to be very frustrated. Yeah, and what, what, one of the interesting things earlier this year was, you know, everybody looks at the stock-bond correlation and you think about the standard 60-40 type allocations that bonds have been a good diversifier. Then you lost some of that this year, you know, and some of the sell-off with uh, certainly earlier this year when when rates were sort of sell, the markets were selling off because rates were going up in some ways. Um, do you think that's likely to be one of the, the next uh you know, major drivers for the market down is continued pressures, or is it, or do you think that we're going to get back to stocks go down, bonds go up, and then offset that? I don't know. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, increasing stock bond correlation has the potential to uh, hurt a lot of people. Although, having said that, I think the average portfolio does not have a lot of bonds. <laughs> After a 10 year bull market in stocks, uh, I think people's allocation to bonds is pretty low at this point. Um, but, you know, I, I would say broadly that stocks are overvalued. And I don't know if bonds are overvalued, but let's just, you know, say for the sake of assumption that they are. <clears throat> and hard assets are undervalued. Commodities are undervalued. I could, I could see a scenario where financial assets go down in value, stocks and bonds, and commodities go up in value. Uh, I can definitely see that happening, and that I think that we're in the beginning stages of that. Yeah, that's one of those markets again. You sort of like where U.S. has been outperforming, international has been underperforming. Commodities have been one of the you know the worst asset classes the last five to ten years. Um, you saw a little bit of of diversification from say like gold in October, where you know gold was up when when markets were selling selling off. Um, how do you think, you know, when you're, you're starting to be on your daily newsletter on, on, on a market commentary, you, you're also getting into more allocations, if, I, uh, if I'm following some of your work right. Uh, do you want to talk about what else you're producing outside of the Daily Dirt Nap there? Uh, yeah, so I also write for Malden Economics. Uh, I write a free newsletter called Tenth Man, and I've been focusing, uh, actually, I've been focusing more on personal finance issues the last four or five months, uh, it's become sort of a pet project of mine. Um, and I have a, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what a portfolio should look like at the individual level and asset allocation. And the reason I started thinking about it was because, uh, I had a, a, you know, an old friend from, you know, decades ago, um, she asked me to look at her portfolio just to give her my opinion. And her portfolio was a hundred percent equities and it was 40% in one stock. Hmm. Um, 
And I said, well, you know, I, you know, I just put my doctor hat on and I said, well, I, there's two obvious problems here. Uh, you don't have any bonds and you need to rebalance your portfolio because, you know, you have one stock that has become very large. And, you know, basically, you know, she had been in that stock for 15 or 20 years and she bought it, you know, when it was small and it got really big and then it dominated her portfolio. And I think that most people's portfolios look kind of like that. Um, not enough bonds or no bonds and probably, uh, you know, probably overweight in one or two or three big stocks. Um, and I'm very concerned about the asset allocation issue. I think that, you know, I actually think the ideal portfolio for most people should be 35% equities and 65% fixed income, um, regardless, regardless of age. And, a lot of people will push back and say, well, that, you know, that doesn't get me to be able to retire at age 65. And I say, well, then you need to save more. Um, you know, the, and the actuarial assumptions on, you know, what equities are going to return over the next 40 years, I think, are a little, uh, little extreme. No, that's an, that's an interesting model, 35-65. It's, put, it's putting the standard 60-40 right on its head and, and flipping it and saying that should be the baseline suggestion for, for a lot of people. Was, well, was, let, me, let, me, let, me explain, let me explain why I want to do that. And, you know, a 35-65 portfolio is, is the stock bond portfolio that has the highest sharp ratio, has the highest sharp. And the reason that people don't, go in that portfolio simply because it doesn't return enough. And this is why the risk parity guys take a 35, 65 portfolio and leverage it. I'm not talking about leveraging it. I'm talking about getting the portfolio with the highest sharp. And, uh, you know, my focus all along has been on behavioral investing and volatility is the enemy to the individual investor. And if they get shaken out of a portfolio and they sell in a bear market, then they stop compounding. So I want people to build portfolios that minimize volatility so they can continue to compound even in a volatile environment. Um, is, and now, so is, is that 3565, is that when you think about adding these uh, quote-unquote diversifiers like commodities or other things in there, is that where, how do you think about that to, to, to I mean, the, historically, maybe the sharp ratios don't look as good because commodities now have been bad, but do you have a sort of more optimistic assumption on, on commodities that you try to add that in? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I just, that's kind of the broad overview. I would, I would throw in a five or 10% allocation to commodities on top of that, you know, so maybe 30, 60, 10. Um, but you know, I, I, commodities are interesting. There was this big debate 10 years ago about whether commodities were an asset class. And, uh, I say they're an asset class. I, I absolutely do. You know, commodities are at historical cheapness to financial assets. Uh, this is measurable. They're at historical cheapness. And I think, you know, with the exception of maybe energy, you know, you can look across and say, especially in agriculture, that, you know, these are historically cheap levels and you want to add them to your portfolio. So Now, when, you're, when you uh, looked at your friend's portfolio and she had the 40% in a single stock, is her resistance, uh, I imagine, maybe she's had, if she's holding it for 15 years and it was small, became big, big capital gains, doesn't want to, you know, pay the taxes and move on to diversify? Is that like one of well, her core it, conundrums? It was, actually, uh, it was actually a 401k, so tax, tax uh-huh. issues were not the, tax were not the issue. Basically, it was, uh, it was endowment effect. It was, you know, this stock has done so well, I like it, I want to hang on to it. Um, it was purely a hundred percent endowment effect. Have you convinced her? 
I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we have to center the podcast and see if we uh, get her get her one more time. Um, so, so the Malden portfolios are, you know, what, what else, um, how often, I, I know you were doing some model allocation, sort of giving some of your ideas through that. How often are, are is that still something you're doing, is the, the ETF models through the Malden economics yes, program? There's, there's, a, there's a paid newsletter that we have. It's very inexpensive. It's called ETF 2020. And basically what it is, think of it as a robo-advisor without taking custody of ETFs. So all it does is the asset allocation part of it. So you pay a very small amount per year, and you get the asset allocation. And uh, I've been running that portfolio for a little over a year now. It's been pretty successful. I mean, the goal of that portfolio was to minimize volatility. I said at the beginning, I said, we're not going to outperform the S&P. Uh, we're not going to make 10 15 20% a year. The goal is to minimize volatility and keep you invested. And that, so far, we have accomplished. So... Is it targeting this thirty-five, sixty-five type of allocation? Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so you're you're, you're putting it exactly, uh, talking exactly where 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 the uh, the secrets are going. Any other you know pieces of that that you want to highlight? We you know in terms of how just some a few maybe a single talking point on where where the models are positioned besides the high level equity thirty-five, sixty-five type allocations. Well, you know I think if uh, <clears throat> you know this is an ETF portfolio. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think if I had the ability to do so, I would include some, um, some actively managed open-end funds uh, for, you know, for more diversification purposes. Uh, I actually just wrote a piece talking about how you should, ha- you should want portfolios that are off the efficient pr- frontier. Uh, my argument was that the efficient frontier is getting very crowded. Um, a lot of brokerage houses are... You know, their robo, um, their robots are choosing portfolios for people that are on the efficient frontier. And all these portfolios are starting to look alike. And I said, you want, you actually want to pick a bad portfolio um, and get something off the efficient frontier. So that's kind of like, <clears throat> I haven't fully fleshed out my research on that, but that's something that I've been working on in the last couple of weeks. Always try to think a little bit differently from the crowd, uh, and, and make sure you're not mar- not a part of that consensus. That's one of the things that uh, I, I love about your writing there. Thank you. Um, so we've been talking with Jared Dillian. He's the author of the Daily Dirt Nap, also publishing a lot of new work around uh, this personal finance, how to s- structure these personal portfolios. Jared, any other f- closing thoughts about uh, in our final countdown here? What where to, where to find your work? So I'm at uh, www.dailydirtnap.com. That's my flagship newsletter. Um, I'm also at maldeneconomics.com. I have a few. I have the ETF 2020 newsletter there that you can check out. I have another newsletter there called Street Freak. But if you want to read my stuff for free, just sign up for the 10th man, and you'll get an introduction to my work. Very good. It's always great connecting with you, Jared. We've been talking again, Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.